Welcome back to Left Anchor. This is Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. And today we're going to talk about what's in the news pretty much all around the world. The nomination and judicial hearings of Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford's testimony before the Senate and Kavanaugh's testimony before the Senate and how this is part and parcel of the Me Too movement. Uh, There's a lot to unpack here, so we'll just dive right in. Yeah, it's um, perhaps as a sort of initial comment, um, it's worth noting that there was a big tsunami in Indonesia that killed like several hundred people and every like it's gotten barely any coverage in U.S. media because everyone is riveted on this just horrifying spectacle of a confirmation hearing uh, process. So, you know. It's a good, uh, a, a good sort of reminder of what else is going on in the background of all this stuff. Like there are multiple humanitarian catastrophes that are not being fixed or even mentioned. No, that's important to to not lose sight of that and, and have some perspective. At at the same time, I, I think that uh, as often as the media goes nuts for things that are more uh, tantalizing and perhaps get clicks and viewers and don't necessarily have corresponding um, significance for our our body politic and, and for our our way of life and our democracy. This is, I think, something actually that demands as oh, much yeah. attention as it, as it might be getting, you know. Um, it, you know, it, it reminds me of the day after Trump getting elected and, and how kind of what a shock to the system it is. There's a lot of feelings to process, a lot of things to to try and figure out about what's going on um, culturally and politically. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I don't, I definitely don't mean to say that this doesn't deserve attention. I think that, that, you know, we'll, we'll get into this later, I think, but that is the, the, maybe the most remarkable and most inexplicable part of this, of this whole process is how the Republicans almost certainly knew about this guy's problems before, he was nominated and they could have picked somebody else. And in fact, they could have picked a woman who was probably more ideologically reliable than this guy. And yet they insist and continue to insist on inflicting this person on the nation. And that is a very interesting question. And one I think I don't quite understand in my own head. And also that they've stayed um, behind him instead of quickly giving him the hook instead of uh, just pushing through someone with a, a clean record the way they got Gorsuch through uh, without any hiccups at all. Um, and but the way, I, the way that happened to uh, Harriet Myers in what was that 2006 or 2007 when she turned out to be to have some, I don't even remember what it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't 1% as objectionable of all, as all this stuff we're, we're talking about with Kavanaugh. And yet when, when that nomination sort of hit the skids, they just pulled it and they put somebody else in there. And I think that ended up being Alito, if I'm not mistaken. And I think we'll get to why uh, that difference exists today, because with Harriet Myers, it was more about competence to sit on the Supreme Court in, in terms of her background and, and the ability. Uh, it was obviously a, a nepotistic uh, choice, just as this is. But that was more a matter of uh, blowback on her credentials. And uh, clearly something else is going on here that despite even the most cynical 
um, approach to politics that you could think of where, hey, they're still going to be able to get through a nominee that's clean and, and be able to have the judicial philosophy uh, essentially harm the lives of many, many, many people in the country um, from our perspective. That seems sub- secondary for them to uh, this particular nominee getting through. And, and I think it's important to, to see how that's part of the story. Yeah, that's right. But let's talk. Uh, let's talk details. Um, this, this. Uh, so breaking news. You know, maybe not quite exactly <laughs> breaking news, but, but just a couple of hours before we're recording this, on, it's October October first, right now, right? Yeah, Monday evening. Um, a bit, a big story from uh, NBC News. Um, <clears throat> just reading the first couple of paragraphs of this thing. Uh, It says, in the days leading up to a public allegation that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself to a college classmate, the judge and his team were communicating behind the scenes with friends to refute the claim according to text messages obtained by NBC News. Kerry Burcham, who was at Yale with both Kavanaugh and his accuser, Deborah Ramirez, so importantly, parenthetically, Uh, This is a different person than Dr. Ford, who testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee last week. So uh, back to the story. Uh, Quote, Deborah Ramirez has tried to get those messages to the FBI uh, for its newly reopened investigation into the matter, but says she has yet to be contacted by the Bureau. So that's Carrie Burcham trying to get the messages, not Ramirez. Um, So... Uh, this, you know, in the, uh, during the hearing, uh, Kavanaugh says, Kavanaugh said that he did not, um, he, he had, the first time he heard about these allegations was when the, the, a story in the New Yorker was published. So I'm reading from the transcript here where Kavanaugh is talking to Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah. And Hatch asked him, when was the first time that the ranking member or her staff asked you about these allegations? Kavanaugh, today. Hatch, when did you first hear of Mrs. Miss Ramirez's allegations against you? Kavanaugh, in the last, in the period since then, the New Yorker story. And so these texts that NBC has, suppose, you know, allegedly, if we trust the reporting, which seems like it would be pretty straightforward to look at some text messages at any rate uh demonstrate that he knew about this claim before it was published um and so yeah that's the news just from just from this evening about kavanaugh the hits just keep on coming it seems i you know i it's such an amazing story because of all the different uh, angles that seem to point to an insidious cover-up by Kavanaugh or the Republicans. Any number of lies, any number of uh, misrepresentations, both in his testimony, um, clearly that the GOP also knew damning things that uh, did not prevent them from, as you say, pushing him forward it's 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 hard to come up with a way to read the situation that makes this a true dilemma where there's you know 
a difficult choice in what to do uh, as a responsible um, political community, right? This is not because so many takes on this seem to be well, you've got the country is divided. There, there are those that believe him, those are those that believe her. Uh, even the GOP in the Senate tried to say that the Democrats are harming both Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford. Dr. Ford's a victim too, Lindsey Graham says, right? Um, which is a very clever move on their part, I think. But um, this is bizarro world to frame it as um, really the Democrats are the evil ones and there's just multiple victims here except for the Democrats that are the perpetrators. This is weird political thing that's going on that's, that's trying to distract from any number of just incredible... Um, incredible uh, things that, that are being allowed to, to not deter him from um, proceeding in this nomination. Yeah, and actually I was mistaken. There was actually a second article that, that um, was published just now. So this one was after the first one. This was published at 7 p.m. So literally one hour ago um, in Bloomberg, and it's t- and it's a story of Kavanaugh and two of his friends that were in an off-campus bar when he was at Yale back in 1985. And it says, quote, They had just come from seeing the English reggae band UB40 at a nearby venue in New Haven, Connecticut, when they saw a man who resembled the lead singer. The man told the trio he wasn't the singer and brusquely told them to stop looking at him. Kavanaugh couldn't let the comment pass, according to one of the two friends with Kavanaugh that night. Kavanaugh first cursed at the man. After the man responded in kind, Kavanaugh threw a beer in his face, said Charles Ludington, a former Yale basketball player who's now a history professor at North Carolina State University. The act precipitated a brawl that drew in their other friend, Yale basketball star and future NBA player Chris Dudley, and eventually prompted a call to police. Um, s- skipping a, skipping a little bit. So this is the first, you know, Ludington said this is the an interview with, with Broom- Bloomberg News where it's the first time he said this. He says, quote, it was a sort of general feature of hanging out with Brett in college, he said in an interview. When you're having beers on a Friday or Saturday night, that was kind of Brett's stick. He was aggressive. He was belligerent. So there's any number of things to talk about here because we have not just dr ford's allegations but a number of potential witnesses um that the senate judiciary uh committee needs to listen to who are saying that they specifically whether it's in high school or or in college respectively observed aggressive belligerent behavior behavior that would suggest that kavanaugh has perjured himself but also that would give credence to the allegations made by dr ford and others about his behavior um, in, in assaulting them sexually. So there seems to be a whole lot of investigation-worthy investigation uh, testimony to pursue and other evidence to pursue. But that has been the political calculation by the GOP. How much evidence can we dismiss and try to ignore um, to get this guy through as fast as possible. And when is it politically not viable to do that? And what are the calculations? It just seems to me that that's what they're, they're trying to, to do with the political theater and with their decision-making at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, it's perhaps, a, you know, as a sort of like background, it's perhaps worth looking at just a little bit of the, the background here in how, um, you know, Kavanaugh repeatedly shaded the truth or misled the Senate or straight up perjured himself, um, which I think, you know, quite possibly with the conversation about whether he knew about Deborah Ramirez's allegations. I mean, that's straight up not true if, if there are text messages to that effect. Um, but, you know, in, in his testimony, he said that uh, the boofing re refers to flatulence, which is... Uh, you know, ac according to both like Urban Dictionary and contemporaneous accounts of the people in that social circle at the time, that's not what that meant. That meant drink. That meant like ingesting alcohol through your your butt. Um, Devil's Triangle. Similarly, he said it was a drinking game. It's a drinking game no one has ever heard of. Um, you know, and and once again. You know, Urban Dictionary and contemporaneous uh, people in that specific social circle of elite uh, George, um, uh, you know, D.C. area prep schools said it was a threesome between two men and a woman. Um, the 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 idea that uh, you know he he says that that he d didn't never once drank to to blacking out despite the fact that he um all these stories about him drinking to excess many testimonials from his friends and acquaintances of him drinking to excess and his own behavior in the community like let's just in the in the uh the uh committee hearing here's just a little snippet of him talking about beer did you consume alcohol during your high school years? Yes, we drank beer. Uh, my friends and I, the boys and girls, yes, we drank beer. I liked beer. Still like beer. We drank beer. The drinking age, as I noted, was 18, so the seniors were legal. Senior year in high school, people were legal to drink. And we, yeah, we drank beer. And I said sometimes, sometimes probably had too many beers, and sometimes other people had too many beers. What we drank beer. We liked beer. And then uh, there's there's the uh, he he said that the uh, in his high school yearbook entry it says that he was a member of the Renate Alumnius Club, which he said was a, just a reference to being friends with this girl. Um, but the uh actual uh woman herself uh took it as you know who did not know about this until it just came out uh in the last couple of weeks and um a f a friend of his uh who's also has a uh, an entry relating to this in his yearbook page michael walsh another georgetown prep alumnus he had a a, 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 a some a poem that says 
You need a date, and it's getting late, so don't hesitate to call Renate. I presume that's how you you pronounce that. So, like, it's it couldn't be more obvious that it's slut shaming this girl, as is so common among high school high school kids. You know, I mean, I remember that kind of stuff when I was in high school. Um, I I think you it would ha- it would take a miracle for somebody to look at the evidence and think that he wasn't actually engaging in this kind of frat Georgetown prep uh, culture, which is all about getting blackout drunk, partying, being macho, and, uh, you know, engaging in in kind of misogynistic, um, typical boys will be boys behavior, the kind of of behavior that uh, those who excused Trump's pussy grabbing comments as, oh, that's just locker room talk. That's just how guys talk to each other when they're alone. So so I think it would take just a blind, uh, willful ignorance to to ignore all that evidence, uh, let alone the, the perjury and let alone how credible Dr. Ford is, let alone the fact that there are multiple allegations that seem credible, et cetera, et cetera. So the question is, what are we talking about here? Is it just about, uh, because one might say, look, uh, I, he's only, he was only 17 and sure, maybe he was a little prick, uh, who was a terrible human back then, but he's a good family man now. Um, what does that really, so if, if we can't prove actually that he did any of these, uh, sexual, uh, assaults or, or sexual harassment allegations that, that, uh, have come forth, if it's just that he, is embarrassed and is lying about his uh, drunken um, kind of frat boy past. Is that enough of a reason to deny him? Well, yes, I think, of course. But but it seems like there's lots of different conversations to be had here. Is he or was he a um, person who sexually assaulted women? Was he part of a culture that actually had like gang rape and you know a culture of rape as well? Is it less than that? Is it just the frat boy culture? Um, you know, is it about the perjury? There seems to be a lot, so much here that he seems to be accused of that it's almost hard to disentangle uh, what's most salient or, or the multiple things that are salient in um, in his nomination, but also just more broadly speaking, what what flashpoints in our politics and culture it um, it kind of touches on for us. Yeah, it's um, it's a difficult. Um, sort of thing to to pin down psychologically because you know you're you're thinking about tactics you're thinking about like you look at the polling on this um kavanaugh is is doing real bad even among white white women you know who voted for trump by like 53 percent his nomination is underwater by like 14 points or something like that last time i checked um and you would think that that they, you know, just get rid of these guys. There's a dozen of them. They're, they, they, there's, there's like two dozen of them actually. I think he was selected from a list of twenty five, and they're all exactly the same. Just, you know, find one, do like a little bit of a background check to make sure that he or she hasn't done any of this crap, and put them through. How hard is it? But they, they are sticking to him closer now, as the allegations have come forward the the commitment to him has become stronger um since that time isn't isn't, isn't that disturbing and interesting at the same time I, I think 
And look, that we could put a pin in, in this side point I'm about to make because there is something that I haven't delved into that I saw uh, a news um, a news piece about maybe Kennedy making his retirement contingent on Kavanaugh being chosen. Did you did you see this? Yeah. Okay, so so maybe there's something about uh, that uh, that Kennedy really needed it to be Kavanaugh. Maybe there's something about. Uh, of course, Kavanaugh's executive privilege views, which Trump needs him because he needs to be protected against the Mueller investigation. So there's that. But there also seems to be something that is in keeping with uh, what made Trump so popular, what makes him so popular amongst his base or among, you know, among his um, most strong supporters. And that is what Corey Robin might call the sense of felt loss that resonates with especially white males. Um, But it's the loss of those who, whether by class or by race uh, or by gender, feel under threat from the privileged power position in the hierarchies, whether it's in family or in culture or in, you know, economics, um, feel under threat from, um, those pushing for equality and, and for non-domination, right? And so there is this sense that Georgetown Prep, Yale, Yale Law School, and the focus on Kavanaugh, look, I like beer, I'm not going to apologize for it, but I also worked hard. This entitlement to not be called out for or investigated for those aspects of his kind of uh, elite class culture that got him to where he is today. You know, we might call it the plutocratic American dream. And um, I think that in a weird way, this might be part of what makes a billionaire like Donald Trump, who's a TV celebrity, somehow um, someone who can empathize with or feel like he connects with your middle class white male, right? Who's like, hey, I'm white like him. Uh, I'm male like him. And we both don't like uh, political correctness. We both don't like it when people call us racist or sexist or misogynist. And, and I feel this sense of loss in my ability to at least retain power over my, my wife or power over um, my ability to say what I want. And I could go on and on here. But this seems to be some, some symbolic battle um, that maybe is strategically and cynically being deployed and pumping up Kavanaugh and supporting him. Um, that really resonates with a lot of, of white men uh, who, who might be Trump supporters or, or uh, sympathetic to Trump. What do you think about that? I think I think that's a that's definitely part of it, you know, and just in how this like this uh, this aspect of um, you know rallying behind the the persecuted conservative. There's a there's a section from. Uh, a, D- a David Day and newsletter, which I think is very, very telling. Um, he says, uh, and definitely you should if subs- you should subscribe to this if you're a, a newsletter person. But he says there's an element of forced humiliation to this crusade. It's important to confirm Kavanaugh precisely because he's been accused, just as it was 27 years ago for Clarence Thomas. Conservatives are fulfilled by victimhood, by being the persecuted majority. They want to dominate their perceived enemies to fill their allies with hate. They want to 
uh, sorry, the whole strategy was to tribalize the vote, to bully even the most skittish GOP senators into picking a side with George W. Bush whipping them along. The essential conservative nature came out in that hearing room. They bathed themselves in fire and loved it. And I think that's, that is exactly the process that I think, you know, like the, the basic nature of it that is coming out, um, in this sort of procedure, I think the one difference is that I don't think the the if you were to sort of transplant the Republican Party of the 1990s or even like the mid 2000s into present day with present day cultural norms, I think that Republican Party would have pulled the plug on this guy a long time ago. Um, I think it's interact that phenomenon is interacting with a sort of internal radicalization of the Republican Party and the conservative movement to make these these uh you know to 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 double down and double down and double down again and there's no this guy's innocent and this is the worst thing that's ever happened to someone and not just be like you know sorry Brett you fucked up so that's that's super interesting because I think that's both true, but I think it's also true that they would not have portrayed Dr. Ford as a victim the way that this GOP has also done. And I think there's an interesting connection there. Look, Now, granted, they treated Anita Hill the way they treated Anita Hill almost assuredly because she's black. And, um, and I think Dr. Yeah. Ford presents not only as white, but also she's of the elite class in terms of her education. It's very she, true. She, so, so I think there are, are, are race and class issues um, you know, bound up here. And so from an intersectional perspective, I think that's important to take into account. But, but I think uh, to, to kind of maybe give even more credence to Corey Robbins' take on, um, on where conservatism is in the Trump era uh, – because there is more legitimate resonance amongst the body politic with, uh, you know, whether it's Me Too or other progressive or egalitarian or liberatory uh, pushes for gender equality, for example, right? Coupled with the, the fact that she's white and, and elite, and so uh, it's hard to discredit her, and her testimony obviously came through as, as highly credible. Um, all the more reason to focus on that part that the GOP can focus on for energy, which is this Trump populism that says, you know, there's a reason, look, there's a reason the guy said, I like my beer, I like beer, you know? That's because Trump supporters can resonate with that. Yeah, I like beer too. And, and you know, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, this this kind of goes back to, to George W. a little bit, like, hey, it's a guy I could have a beer with. But But also this fear of, hey, you know, I'm just a guy who likes beer. I worked hard. I did the right things. Um, can you imagine if you were accused, like the guilt by accusation, right? C- couldn't you see how it would shake your family, uh, you know, tear your family apart? And wouldn't it be terrible to be falsely accused? Oh, so maybe Dr. Ford's a little confused about who did it, but I'm also the victim here. I mean, I'm just a guy who likes beer and I'm being attacked for, for what I did at age 17. You can see how that would be a clever uh, thing to appropriate to try to boost um, support. But like, again, it doesn't explain why they don't just move on to the next candidate unless the future of the conservative movement has to be about placating and, and energizing that base with that kind of, of social cultural fissure, right? And divide to foster that divide actually. Um, and, and not to admit defeat when it comes to 
people who think that political correctness is bullshit, who think that, uh, as some someone, uh, you know, I've read so many things on this, said, just because uh, you've been a good person generally or in your later life doesn't mean that there's not mistakes or even terrible things that you need to own up to. Um, but I think that's part of what white, white male privilege is, right? Not wanting to have to face up to the consequences of lots of terrible oppression that you've participated in uh, to various degrees because you've also maybe suffered uh, in, in your economic status or, or what have you. Like there's lots of different paths to enticing potential Trump voters, supporters with this kind of politics. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, they're sort of maybe correctly perceiving what, that people want to hear, you know, but I also think that it's, it's, it's become, it's moved beyond logic to an extent, you know, like, like these, these folks have, I I mean, the Republican party, I think over the past, let's say like five to 10 years has more or less lost the ability to make tactical decisions. Um, And it's just, it's just all id all the time. And that has worked out well for them. And that's, I think, part of the reason why they have not been able to make those sort of decisions. And I think that, you know, this could work out well for them. It could turn out their base and so on and so forth. But I think that I really think they are underrating the possibility that they ram this guy through and like stuff just keeps coming out, coming out, coming out, coming out. And then there's, some, you know, there's maybe, you know, four or five things that are really, really damning. And they just they just they've turned the you know they whipped the democratic base into a froth with this kind of crap and um just totally tanked their reputation even among women i mean the gender gap from what i've seen in the recent polling is like creeping up on 20 percent or something like that you can't be i mean i'm talking about half the population you know you can't be a a, a you can't be a national party in a huge multi-ethnic democracy if you are relying on white men, white men are like 30 something percent of the population, you know, you're giving up most of the people. And I think they just cannot, they have lost the ability to think strategically about that stuff. That's fair. I think there is an irrationality to it, but I'll say a few things about that. I I mean, for one, um, that id might be literally the id of old white Republican senators and party leaders who feel a personal affront that their um, one of their guys is being challenged for the kind of things that probably some of them have also done unquestionably right Um, so there's I think a little bit of um, (laughs) of personal interest and and, um, emotion in the defense I mean Lindsey Graham's defense is either the most hilariously staged political theater or he also feels uh, indicted as, as so many probably do by the abuse of power that they've, um, maybe subjected others to. But, but here's the other thing, like, let's not forget that as irrational as they might be tactically, they also strategically gerrymander and, uh, curtail voting rights and do any number of things to, uh, reinforce the oligarchic rule by making the demos less and less able to challenge it. That's right? true. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of moving parts yeah. going on here. We've talked a little bit about even the perception of him being guilty and how crazy it is that the GOP would stick with him and try to push him through and what, what perhaps is going on there. Um, related to that might also just be 
a general, I mean, there's so much, uh, look, the, the number of people reporting sexual assault that's occurred to them in the past jumps, right? The hotline just skyrocketed during these hearings. Yeah. Uh, one of the hot, right? And, and uh, so many stories are coming out. It's another, another, um, Another part of the hashtag Me Too story, which is that there is so much trauma and fear um, and shame bound up with um, mostly women who have suffered from sexual assault and um, and rape, that solidarity and courage of someone like Dr. Ford uh, motivates and gives occasion for those other women to be brave and come and tell their stories. So there's a lot of emotion and a lot of <sighs> testimony bound up with very, very real. So just forget Kavanaugh for a moment. What is definitely coming up that is just unquestionable is how pervasive sexual violence is in the United States, at least probably worldwide, but at least and especially in the United States uh, from a young age for young women in, throughout their lives that is underappreciated, underreported, um, not properly discussed politically, that has all kinds of ramifications uh, and all kinds of things that seem to be bound up with those power structures and those um, tactics of the GOP that pretend to obscure and minimize, right, the trauma, suffering, and pain of so many people um, politically and culturally, right? Yeah, and actually, you know, um, it's it's certainly not just the GOP here. Um, That's true. That's a good the, point. The, uh, it, you know, certainly you could say it seems like the balance of this kind of stuff is, is in the Republican Party. But um, I, I was just today reading a uh, Michael, Michael Kelly profile of Ted Kennedy from 1990. And... Um, one of the details in there uh, are is is a, re- a reported bit about a, a, something that happened at a restaurant um, with Ted Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, and Senator Chris Dodd. Ted Kennedy, as we recall, died in two thousand and nine. Chris Dodd was a senator up through I think twenty twelve, maybe, and he's still alive, I believe. And so this is a story where these um, these two two men, two senators, one from Massachusetts and one from uh, Connecticut, are very drunk, um, and one uh, let's see, there's a there's a, there's a woman Betty Lowe who's been serving these four people. And uh, the owner of this restaurant called The Brazier Telling uh, t- tells uh, another woman to, that the senators want to see her. Or sorry, ac- according to this story, um, this woman, Gaviglio, uh, maybe pronouncing that wrong, uh, comes into the room, the, the six foot two, quoting from the profile, Quote, the six foot two, 225 plus pound Kennedy grabs the five foot three, 103 pound waitress and throws her on the table. She lands on her back, scattering crystal plates and cutlery in the lit candle. Several glasses and a crystal candlestick are broken. Kennedy then picks her up from the table and throws her on Dodd, who is sprawled in a chair. 
With Gaviglio on Dodd's lap, Kennedy jumps on top and begins rubbing his genital area against her, supporting his weight on the arms of the chair. As he is doing this, Lo, the previous uh, waitress, enters the room. She and Gaviglio both scream, drawing one or two dishwashers. Startled, Kennedy leaps up. He laughs. Bruised, shaken, and angry over what she considered a sexual assault, Gaviglio runs from the room. Kennedy, Dodd, and their dates leave shortly afterward, following a friendly argument between the senators over the check. So this, I think what's interesting about this is that, you know, not only is this like a horrifying example of, you know, just a sexual assault, I would say that almost certainly happened. It's almost exactly the same thing as what Brett Kavanaugh did to this, uh, to to, uh, Christine Ford. Ford, yes. And not when he was 17, but when he was like, you know, like 40 something and a senator with another senator there. And this is, I think, the, you know, and this is not the 30s or the 40s. This is like this, the 70s, I, I believe, or the 80s. So, you know, this is not like, uh, you know, some distant mists of, of past. Um, and it speaks to the it speaks to the license that these men thought they had and did, did indeed have. Uh, who are, you and know, still still think they have. They still think they they have this this license, and it goes across party, not just for the Kennedy example, but um, I think I think you're right. I, I think it just brings to mind. Look, the pattern here is what is the elites in whatever realm you're talking about financial. Hey, let's tank the global economy and no one will suffer for it. No one will be punished, right? One guy goes to jail for tanking the global economy. Okay. Uh, We will have Abu Ghraib. We'll torture people. We'll have war crimes. Uh, No one will be prosecuted as war criminals. No one will be held to account. Okay. So just the pattern here is of violence, right? It can be sexual violence. It could be literal violence in war. It could be violence caused by, you know, economic disaster. Uh, and, and almost always the violence is caused by those who are seeking their own ends without regard to the consequences, right? Whether they're yeah. political or pers- personal. And there tends to be this entrenched defense of the ability for the powerful oligarchs, for the elite, to do whatever the fuck they want to anyone, right? And get away with it, essentially. Yeah, there's a great, a, a really excellent um, section of this profile later kind of unfortunate that Michael Kelly turned out to be this terrible neoconservative warmonger when he was uh, later. He, he, I believe, is the same Michael Kelly who died uh, in Iraq uh, in a Humvee that overturned in a ditch, and he drowned along with the, um, after being like a raw, raw, pro-Iraq war guy. But anyway, so he's in this profile. He says... Um, there, uh, there have been many theories advanced to explain Kennedy's behavior, all of which make much of the extraordinarily competitive and amoral atmosphere, especially as far as the treatment of women were, was concerned, in which the Kennedy boards were raised. As Gary Willis makes clear in his elegant The Kennedy Imprisonment, 
Ted Kennedy was born and bred to act like the last of the Regency rakes, to be a boor when it pleases him, to take what he wants, to treat women as score markers in the game of sport fucking, and to revel in high-stakes risks. Joseph Kennedy Sr. flaunted his affairs in front of his wife and children, made crude presses at his son's dates, and well past his middle years was still chasing doxies. John Kennedy's mad womanizing, frolicking with new debts in the White House swimming pool, banging a call, call girl in Lincoln's bed, carrying on a barely secret affairs uh, with admitted mobster girlfriend Judith Campbell Exner with Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield, was beyond anything Teddy has ever done, or for that matter, anything anybody has ever done. Neither Joe nor Jack was punished by church, state, or wife for such behavior, and the late-born Teddy coming into the family when its adult behavior patterns were already mythologized presumably figured that neither the rules of decency nor of retribution applied to a Kennedy. The boy grew to manhood without learning how to be an adult. His drinking suggests nothing so much as a frat boy on a toot. His actions with women seem to be more evidence, as writer Susanna Lessard put it in 1979, of a severe case of arrested development, a kind of narcissistic intemperance, a huge babyish ego that must constantly be fed. That's beautiful. I I think that's, boy, that is so spot on. Um, It's occurring to me now more and more how helpful Corey Robin, if I may keep uh, invoking his work is to this moment. I, I'm recalling specifically his work on, on John C. Calhoun and the ways in which the reactionary movement then was appropriating the language of equality and the language of the left in order to justify slavery. And specifically, what he notes is how Calhoun you know, used the language of equality to unite poor and rich white people. So the plantation owners who were extremely wealthy could say to other whites who were less well off, hey, look, let's let's forget about these class issues. At least we're both equal in our whiteness and, and we're superior to a whole class of black people and, and therefore you should, you know, band with us. And it occurs to me the same thing is going on with uh, the elites politically today, which is to say, don't worry about the power differences that have to do with class and the ways in which uh, the political elite, whether on Wall Street or in, in D.C., um, have so many more privileges and how much have so much power. Look, we are all equally uh, defending ourselves against claims of sexual assault. We are all equally uh, prone to, to enjoy beer and getting drunk. And, and we all should be able right, to do what we want with women in these ways and to say what we want. And, and those PC assholes over there are trying to take away your ability to dominate the women in your life and the way for you to be able to, to say what you think, even if it's racist. It's the same kind of clever appropriation uh, that, you know, elides the class and power differences in order to get the populist support from those who would otherwise have their interests against it, right? And it just makes so much sense to me today in light of Me Too and Trump. Yeah, I think that's I think that's basically correct. And that the you know the 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 way that uh, the the anger and the the sort of weepy uh, self pitying tone of Kavanaugh at this hearing 
and how the Republican senators responded to him, like a couple of them were tearing up, if I'm not mistaken, was they they saw a guy who had who had done he came from the right family. He can't, he did the right things. He went through the right, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the he right nepo- nepo- nepotistic in the right way. He did the right rituals, right? Yeah. He, he, yeah, he, he, he had the right, basically the markers of aristocracy and the, the idea that someone could be taken down from their position you know, I mean, that's that's kind of like the logic of aristocracy is that it doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you are and who you know and who your parents are and so forth. Um, and obviously that doesn't, in, you know, what you do always matters to some degree, even a little bit. But it's still, you know, the logic of it. You see it coming to the front stronger and stronger and stronger. It's like, oh, I, I got into Yale. And the, and then this guy making these these like ridiculous meritocracy claims. Yes, I got oh, this is I had no connections. Oh, except for my grandfather who was there. That's right. And no, I no, went I to think the it's it's fucking a, most elite. Absolutely. It's a specifically American argument which confuses, conflates, and and entangles aristocratic arguments with uh, meritocratic arguments. Uh, so, so at the same time, I shouldn't be touched because, you know, I went to Yale and Yale was the best school. At the same time, I worked really hard. I, I you know, he, he answers some of these questions at the hearing in a bizarre, almost non sequitur manner where he's asked about something regarding the sexual assault or his drinking. And in response to a question about his drinking, he says, Look, sure, I, I was drinking, but also I was the valedictorian or I was number one in my class my freshman year of high school. <laughs> and and some weird move that he's like, you can't imp- – look, there's no way I could have sexually assaulted anyone. Do you, did you see that I worked hard and I got good grades? Like some weird blend of like <laughs> I, was at this, I was at this great prep school and I worked hard and I was on these sport teams. How, like in other words, how dare you question me? I did all the things, Right. I checked off all the boxes. What do you want from me? Right? You didn't, you no one told me not to fucking sexually assault anyone, actually. What they told me is to get good grades and be on these sports teams and network. And I did all that stuff. So why are you bothering me right now? You know? Yeah, that is a very telling defense of his position that, that he's responding to like specific, uh, you know, allegations or you know questions about his drinking behavior with these sort of like general meritocratic signifiers <laughs> i i was i was on i lifted weights with my friend i i my my father had a calendar he literally <laughs> said that he was like breaking down over the the fact that his dad had a calendar and showed it can, to him. can we just say look you know we don't know the guy we are no we're not omniscient uh, but also, this is not this podcast is not a fucking court of law where we have to have beyond reasonable doubt as our fucking standard. Uh, I think the guy personally, my observations from his testimony, he's a smug motherfucker who is being called out for something he may look, he may or may not remember it. He certainly knows he was a blackout drunk. He certainly knows he was a misogynistic, misogynistic fuck who partied with other misogynistic fucks, and for sure he knows he was a piece of shit to women. I think all of that is true. Yeah. Okay. Um. And he, on his high horse, feels entitled to the Supreme Court job and to be hooked up 
nepotistically because he played the nepotism game, played the meritocratic aristocratic game, and is just so fucking angry, right? And he might even feel sorry for Dr. Ford. I don't even know. But, like, that's not really the salient issue for him. The salient issue for him is, my God, I did what I was supposed to do. I'm a good family man. How dare you drudge up things I may or may not have done when I lived the plutocratic American dream? You know what I mean? How dare I be only on the second most powerful court in the most powerful (laughs) country in the world and not on the most powerful court? (laughs) And it does seem to be legitimately distressing to this to this guy. And this is maybe, you know, a, a place to bring up, you know. I don't know if it was Aristotle. You could probably tell me about this. Um, Aristotle talks about like the 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 sort of like degenerated forms of government and the like healthy forms. Um, and it I starts with Plato. Yeah, but they both do. But but mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I feel like you know, aristocracy is yes. a lo- is it's not a great form of government, but it is a kind of logical form. Like it, it, there is an internal logic to it that does sort of make sense. And yeah, can I do a quick, a quick little spiel that'll help please foreground this. Okay. So for Aristotle, there are six forms of regime types, uh, three forms in terms of the number of rulers. So you can have rule by one, you can have rule by the few, or you can have rule by the many. Okay. But there's six because Either those three forms can rule for the common good and be healthy um, forms of government and and healthy regimes. Uh, So you could have a monarchy. uh, You could have an aristocracy. You can have what he would call or what the English translation might be called a polity, which is a healthy rule by the many. Or you could have a deviant version of those, an unhealthy, a corrupted, uh, a spiritually, like the spirit of the regime is degenerated. So uh, the monarchy would be a tyranny. The aristocracy would be an oligarchy. And the polity would be, one translation is democracy. With the difference being, the three corrupted versions are all oriented to, like they rule to serve their own private interests, right? Rather than the common good. And so aristocracy, whether you believe in rule by the elite or not, is putatively at least about honor and about ruling for the common good based on what the elite think is best for it, for everyone collectively. And the perversion of that, the corruption of that is uh, oligarchs, plutocrats who line their pockets and are simply trying to empower themselves as against the common good. Yeah, and I think, you know... I mean, obviously, I believe in democracy. I think democracy is the best system. But I think it is true. If you look at history, you can see, you know, uh, systems and sort of hybrid systems maybe where, where like, you you know, England in the, like, 1500s or something like that, where, like, you have a monarch, but also you have a very powerful aristocracy. You know, arguably, it's mostly an aristocracy at that point. But, you know, you, you have sort of, like, varying you know, sort of shades of those type of systems where it's like the aristocrats really are trying to wield the power that they have just straight up inherited without any sort of legitimation whatsoever aside from them being born to the right person in a moral way. And then you have people who are just 
just taking what they can, just enjoying themselves and just indulging in hedonistic sort of pursuits. And, well, you know, for example, you know, in an American context, FDR, the best president, was an aristocrat, grew up a child of absolute privilege, you know, uh, a a nephew of a president. And um, I think maybe partly as a result of that milieu in which he grew up, which emphasized sort of service and sort of emphasized the unearned nature of his influence and power, maybe to some extent um, allowed him to make decisions on behalf of the common the common good and the common people, which, you know, if you're if you're having to justify everything you do on a, on on a meritocratic basis, you know, and Brett Kavanaugh, one of the world's most privileged people who's ever lived, sort of try, ludicrously claiming that he had no connections to Yale, you know, when it's like now this would be the second Supreme Court justice that this one private school would have you know, 22% or whatever it is, two out of nine people from one prep school, not even a university, a <laughs> goddamn prep school. It's And you know, all the justices are from Harvard or Yale, all of yeah, them, Harvard and Yale law schools. And had Clinton won, four of the last five presidents would have been of two families, a Bush or a Clinton. And, and how fucking hard is it to see that that's oligarchy, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, the idea that, oh, well, the best and the brightest just meritocratically rose in, from the demos to, to yeah. be in these positions. It's a joke. Yeah, and I think, you know, in this, this uh, it's perhaps a demonstration of how if you, if you have an ex- extremely unequal society, you sort of automatically produce a kind of elite government. And if it's a democracy, then I think that, that maybe that kind of tends to automatically produce a sort of degenerated form of aristocracy. And a... And a, and a Maybe a, a concrete example of this is uh, Amy uh, Ch- Chua. I don't, I'm not sure yeah. how to yeah. pronounce I her. Think that's right. She, um, so she's Yale, a professor right? at Yale, at Yale Law School, along with her husband. And she wrote an op-ed in the in the Wall Street Journal supporting Brett Kavanaugh, specifically referencing how he had mentored uh, young women when he uh, had. You know, when he was taking uh, clerks to work for him as a federal judge. And so, um, you know, portraying him as this like sort of quiet feminist, you know, like boosting up the careers of women in his employment. Then later it came out based on the testimony of numerous sources with firsthand knowledge that uh, Amy Chua had... um, instructed her students that this Kavanaugh guy is a real horn dog. He likes women who he, he likes pretty young ladies. And so specifically one of them said, you should not wear a suit when you go to interview with this guy, because he, he wants, you know, he wants like a more feminine a certain look, type, a you know. certain type. And, and, and this is the, the, the key, the, uh, the, the key part of it is she, her own daughter was sent up to um a clerk for this guy before he got nominated so she was putting her own daughter into the line of fire of this like known 
like at least from the perspective of Amy Chua, Horn Dog, and and you would think almost certainly these stories are going around about him being a belligerent drunk who beats people up, who gets in fights, and who likes has sexually assaulted people in the past, and that is the that that is the degenerate uh, aristocracy. Yes. That, yes. That yes. Comes to mind. And- and it's important, absolutely. It's important to point out that the the um, you know Plato and the ancient Greeks in this respect would say that the ruling class in this respect reflects the spirit of the of the whole body politic, right? It's it's not a coincidence, in other words, yeah. uh, that the leaders are like this. So they're not. Apart from and you know everyone in the in the, in the rest of the body politics is just very healthy and, and spiritually um, without such <laughs> proclivities right and just magically right the rulers of uh, of the country happen to be perverted no no it's a reflection of the spirit of the whole regime in fact and and I think that's why Me Too has so much resonance with what's going on here because it is an absolute representation of what's going on in the workplace all around the country in households all around the country in schools all around the country. There is something uh, diseased, as you've said before, uh, about our culture and our body politic that is simply manifesting and more apparent at these highest levels and being perpetuated at those levels as well. Um, and, and we have to, to, to find some way to treat that and, and root out that disease. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think this, this maybe gets to a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, because, you know, as, as I said before, obviously Ted Kennedy, Chris Dodd, those guys are both Democrats, but, um, today Democrats, liberals, the liberal base, take this kind of stuff much more seriously. And so, you know, Al Franken, when he was accused of something much less um, bad than what was detailed in this Ted Kennedy profile, you know, it was like a, a, a couple of gro- gropings, bad, bad things, but not like throwing somebody down on the table and like um, grinding on them or whatever. Like and he was out. She, where, where, and Dr. Ford feels like her life would be accidentally ended because of how drunk and violent he was. Yeah, it's different, but still, but still terrible by Franken. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's sort of, I don't know, it's like seven out of ten in terms of just, and I know like there was, there was picture evidence. I think that's important too. But, you know, they, they got rid of him. He was, was like, sorry. You know, Gone, yeah. it, it's it's not fair in the sense that other people are getting away with it and you away with it and you are not. But you still did a bad thing. And that's it. I'm sorry. But, here, but here's here. Here's what I'll say about that, though. And this is where, I, you know, look, if we're going to be left anchor, we need to figure out what the salient difference is between liberal responses to these types of things and what the leftist response should be. Right. And one thing I'll say is that uh, as great as that is. Um, I see in that also the same problem I see with uh, kind of the token identity politics running a neoliberal that happens to be a person of color or a woman um, to push policies that simply reaffirm the power structures and the problems that cause all these fucking things or, or so much of these things. Um, in other words, look, 
when you see the frat culture at Georgetown Prep or at Yale or, or whatnot, is it just uh, like a magical magnet that draws these misogynistic assholes together? Are there material conditions or structural things that create a Brett Kavanaugh or create, if you don't believe Brett Kavanaugh is guilty of, um, of anything somehow, uh, create the kinds of cultures that give rise to sexual assaults, to rapes, to so many Harvey Weinsteins and other people. Like, what is behind the creation of the toxic masculinity and the kind of um, above-the-law uh, flaunting and, and actual uh, appropriation of victimhood on behalf of the actual abusers like Kavanaugh or, or, or others? Um, you know, I think as a as a left as leftists, we should figure out how to tie that to certain structures that are invested in re, uh, kind of reaffirming those power structures, and 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 kind of the paucity of response that liberalism has so often to uh, to really that that root cause. Yeah, that that's a good point. Yeah, and I think so. Obviously, um, you know, claiming a a high profile, very high profile, um, you know, casualty, whatever you want to call it. Somebody like Ted freaking example to say that, like, even if you're a senator and you're a pretty good senator, maybe by the lights of liberals, you are you you have no excuse for this. We're taking you out. Yeah, that's good. Re- that's replaced that's good. with something. So um, that's fine. That you know, that's part of it. I think I think maybe the the other part of it is maybe say a, t- a twofold response just sort of off off the cuff here you have on the one hand inequality writ large i think that inequality enables this kind of thing um it's it's never a sort of like causal factor but like if you have a huge underclass of people who are just like economically desperate and then a tiny minority of people with tons and tons and tons of power and money and influence like you know sexual assault is just like one part of the kind of broader galaxy of oppression that tent that almost automatically comes out of that sort of thing and then secondly um you know aside from just like inequality there are like specific structural things you could do so um you're talking about just like you know, full employment policy, uh, broad welfare state support, paid leave, child allowance, um, you know, the sort of full panoply of things for for workers who, you know, strike about of unemployment or, or, or you know, feel like having uh, children or something like that. So anyway, the, the the point being that one way in which this kind of sexual coercion is enabled, not the only way, but one way is is how people feel themselves to be disempowered where, you know, it's my boss or it's my coworker who is sexually harassing me and I feel like I, I have to have this job and I just have to put up with it. I'm going to sort of smile and nod and not say anything because I can't afford to 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 get rid of this job and so if you make it so that at any point any per any working class person can say fuck you 
I'm I'm right. gonna I'm quitting this job and I'm gonna go to the you know maybe I'm gonna go to the police after that. You could you know you you would sort of change the the balance of power there to sort of make it you know spread it out to make it more equal. And I think on you know on the one hand people would they would feel um, you know they would feel more able to say no, but on the other hand maybe more importantly these these fucking people would learn that you can't get away with that kind of thing. And maybe that's, that's right. kind of the important part of the setting the example, you know, to just to be like, you know, I think that that the, the Franken thing and, you know, and, and why I think it would be important to claim a lot more scalps over the years uh, for, you know, that's maybe not the best word for it. But just to like, you know, set some more examples that's just to say, the just to instill in the minds of elite people that if you're <laughs> caught doing this kind of thing, your career is done. You're over. And look, look, Ryan, it's not your fault that you have an ingrained racist analogy that you pulled out. It is not that, that you look, you're, you're a white man and it's natural. That I grew up sometimes in the Southwest. You, you know, so uh, I apologize to our indigenous listeners and, and to those that are sensitive to, to that kind of joke. Damn you, Ryan. No, but I think this is a good point you're making. I look, there are so many answers to how we could better as a society, politically and culturally, um, both protect and empower those that might uh, be under threat of the assault, violence, oppression from those who have power over them in the household, in the workplace. Um, but also, we need to go after these motherfuckers in power. Uh, yeah. and equally make them scared of abusing power and doing violence. So, because we at once don't empower and we at once uh, punish victims, right, who have less power. There's an asymmetry there. And simultaneously protect the abusers and the oppressors. Uh, and then appropriate the language of victimhood for the oppressors when they're accused and challenged. Look how courageous Dr. Ford was. Yeah, incredible. Like like being an amazing citizen, a heroic person who is coming before so many people, I'm sure getting all kinds of hate, mail, what have you. That's right. She had to leave her house. Yes, reliving the trauma, right? Going through all of this, why? To serve the talk about somebody who's trying to fucking serve the common good, okay. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's almost you can't you can almost not make up the um, the good versus evil narrative here, right? So because you have this heroic person who's the victim, um, bravely serving and sa- being sacrificial for others. Um, despite having been the victim and suffering for all these years. And then you have the, the alleged abuser and the structure and the system that is uh, prone to protecting the abusers and the oppressors, right? Uh, turning the actual alleged abuser and that culture that gave rise to it as the very thing that should be protected and as the basis for sympathy from all these potential voters who also want to perpetuate their violence. Um, So I think a leftist response, as you say, has to be concerned with not just leveling the playing field in terms of equality of opportunity and, oh, we should have equality before the law, right? (laughs) Fuck that, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like how about, how about... 
we actually empower people by providing all of the necessities of life, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's a shelter, whether it's all, you know, basic living expenses, all the things, right, that could actually make somebody say, oh, you know what? I still have to risk a lot in coming forward about someone who's harmed me, but at least I don't have to consider whether coming out is going to affect my ability to shelter, to have shelter, to have clothes, to have food. Um, There's still all kinds of social harms that can be done. But at the very least, right, we can understand how uh, social norms are the superstructure of the structure, which means that we're culturally so inclined to protect the powerful and believe them, right? And this is in part why Dr. Ford has been believed more than Anita Hill. But also, you know, we're less inclined to help those that need the help more. So, again, this is just another indictment of all those structures that we can attack um, beyond just equality before the law. And let's have, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a liberal token candidate to symbolize the oppressed or, well, you know, let's just, you know, get rid of somebody in power who has done a bad thing. No, no, no. We have to be more bold in helping so many people and more bold in attacking so many people in power. I don't know. That's my little screed. I think that's absolutely right. And I think perhaps uh, just as a closing comment, you know, we've spoken about how um, Dr. Ford is was was sort of just like walking into the hail of bullets without really, you know, with like a slim hope that she was going to going to change anything. Um but and I th- but I think that that even even if she did not uh even if she doesn't derail this nomination, if it turns out to be like pointless in the in the medium term, I I I think that that moral example really is going to stand for a long time. You know, I, I, I certainly was not the only person who was looking at that and just being like, God, you know, like, like what a, what a hero, you know, what, Absolutely. what a, what, what a, what a moral exemplar. And I think you know, that, as we said before, you know, the, the C-SPAN calls were lighting up with people who are sort of just like, I'm, you know, I'm telling my story now. I'm inspired by this. You know, I've, I've, I've let it sit for too long. Absolutely. Look, as much as it was a bullshit line at the time, or it turned out to be, you know, when Obama said, we are the ones we've been waiting for, had that actually been a real message that would have meant a lot because it's the Dr. Fords, it's the citizens who are heroic in that way that, that orient themselves to the common good they can give rise to inspiring movements among the demos, among the people that actually changes the character of the body politic, that the actual spirit of the regime can change from the bottom up, from the ground up. And then those fuckers in power have no chance at all because we can change from the ground up, from within the spirit of who we are can shift and the power structures will then topple and adjust accordingly if the greeks are to be believed and alexi the greek thinks they can be i think you're right i maybe it's wishful thinking but i i have to believe it awesome all right brother thanks again yeah well thanks for listening yep thanks everybody see you next time